Between Tommy and me, neither of us have ever wished to be French. But all of a sudden, we want to put on some boomer, pose in rented supercars, drive through Lyon, show off some fake watches, and put everything in slow-mo. Damn, Kareem, what are you doing to us? What are you doing to us? Welcome to the Anglo-Italian pod. It's Friday. As always, I am Rory, and I'm joined by my good friends... Kareem the Dream! No, I'm joking. It's Tommaso <laughs> once again. Welcome to episode 57, season 2 of the Anglo-Italian pod. I am very excited about this one. Of course, the headlines and our opening goes to the man himself, Karim Benzema, back-to-back Champions League hat-tricks at the Bernabeu, at Stanford Bridge. Cannot wait for our Euro review. Before we start, remember to follow us on Instagram at AngloItalianPod, on Twitter at ItalianAngloPod, and to give a cheeky little follow to our sponsor at Sports Club Maps. But Rory, how are you doing on this fine spring day? I am pretty bloody good. I don't know if I announced this already on the pod yet or not, but I officially, officially, officially passed my scouting course. So this week, Ooh. I got this. Uh, yeah, I got the certificate through level two talent identification, bitches. So here I am um, now learning how to do a football CV and trying to make myself sound like I'm not just a guy who sits on the sofa watching football. Um, so I will be looking for jobs. I am looking for jobs. But yeah, finally got the course done. I'm pretty excited. And uh, have you considered the fact that maybe you will, when you will work as a scout full time, the next Messi will pass before your eyes, and maybe you will not recognize the talent in him? Um, I'm trying not to think of it that way. Um, I'm trying to think <laughs> of it as the next Messi will stumble into my lap, not literally into my lap, but into my lap. Um, and I'll my career to, you all know... started with abuse from an English scout. <laughs> Let me tell you the story. And I'll be able to, like, you know, milk that 15% commission for the next, like, 40 years of my life. That's the dream, right? That is the dream, indeed. The new Mino Raiola comes from Crew. <laughs> Little did you know. I'm doing good as well. Uh, it's been, it's just beautiful for me to wake up in the morning and see that the sun is shining outside. Mm. Keep that going, weather. We all love it. Rory, what's in it for us and our listeners in this episode 57? Well, this episode, we are going to be talking about a banger in the Premier League that was kind of overshadowed a little bit by European events, but Everton looking massively in trouble, even more so now. Then, of course, we're going to switch our focus to the European games. We'll be looking at absolute insanity at Stamford Bridge, even bigger insanity in Spain, um, a snooze fest in Manchester And then we'll have a little bit of time to talk about, obviously, Liverpool comfortably beating somebody. And then it's time for our big interview. This week, we are joined by author, footballer, traveller, Seth Burkett. It's a great interview. Some wild stories. I'm pretty excited for you all to hear it. And you can find it on YouTube as well. You just have to look for our channel, the Anglo-Italian pod, click on the video and enjoy it. Rory, are you ready to jump on the blimp? Shall we get the Euro review started? Of course. Also, hit subscribe and like while you're on the YouTube. It's like the law. You have to say it every time you say YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Like and subscribe and tell a friend. Exactly. Euro review. Let's go. 
And here we are in the Euro Review blimp. And before going to the hotter climates of Europe, we have to go right up north to the freezing cold and we have to stop in Burnley at Turf Moor for what was an absolute banger of a game. This was a game that a lot of people, a lot of football hipsters were saying, you know, you might all be watching the Champions League, but I'm going to be watching a relegation dogfight. And to be honest... I can't, a part of me is quite sad I missed out on it. Um, so, what happened? Um, Everton completely crumbled. They went 1-0 down from a, uh, from a corner. The defending was absolutely terrible. Just a ball put in at the back post. Every Everton defender just stands still and is tapped in. Like, really, really lazy defending. Everton somehow are gifted two penalties by Burnley. So, Burnley let them into the game, right? Richarlison scores both the penalties and at halftime, Everton are 2-1 up. You're thinking, okay, right, finally. Burnley have been struggling this season. They're not a good team, right? They've gifted Everton a chance to get three points here. Surely the Toffees will be able to see it out, right? But then Sean Dyche sprinkles a little bit of magic. Um, After the game, he revealed what his halftime talk was. And this is like up there with the famous Alex Ferguson against Tottenham, like lads it's Tottenham, kind of in levels of disrespect as he turned around to them and said, boys, this team do not know how to win away. So Burnley came out (laughs) and they worked harder. They rolled their sleeves up. They scored two goals. And in the 89th minute, Maxwell Corne got the winner for Burnley. And this is a massive result. Now I've been looking at, I've been sat on YouTube today and I've been kind of trying to get some some views of Everton fans and what went wrong and how they found themselves there, what the kind of result of this kind of result is going to be. And, and a lot of the, the way, fans... We, we are looking for a fan to come on the pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys want... <laughs> if you guys have a friend uh, to bring on the pod, that would be better than us just lurking on Instagram and Twitter, being like, hey, you're an Everton fan. Can you jump on our podcast to talk about relegation? So <laughs> if you guys have a friend... <laughs> Mention our name, and he's going to be our next guest. Yeah, I think we really, really do want to hear hear from an Everton fan. But the general consensus was that they think this is the result that could send them down. Um, now, we've talked about the, their running and how horrific it is. They've got Man United on Saturday. They've got to play Leicester twice. They've got to play Liverpool. They've got to play Arsenal. They've got to play Chelsea. And they've got to play all the teams they play are inside the top 10, except Watford, I think. So they've got a really, really hard running. But this, like, if they'd have won this game, they would have found themselves on 28 points and it would have put them um, seven points ahead of Burnley. I think it would have almost secured them um, safety. But now the fact that they've thrown these points away, they are now on 25 points. Burnley are on 24 and they've played the same amount of games. This is the problem for a lot of Everton fans and for a lot of people talking about Everton. They've been saying, oh, they've got games in hand. They'll be fine. They've got games in hand. They'll be fine. They've only got one game in hand on Watford now who are 19th. Leeds, I think, have basically found themselves out of it. They're not like they still need to get a few more points, but they're looking a lot more comfortable. They are now six points ahead of the relegation. So, so Everton, they're running out of games in hand and they're running out of opportunities. And this was a terrible performance. I think just how open they are defensively, how their midfield seems to take forever on the ball and, like just naive decisions. I think it's uh, John Joe Kenny gets caught out. He tries to take a shot and leaves 20, 30 yards behind him. 
Burnley break and get the goal. Like, and it's just this the teams around them, we've talked about it. The teams like Burnley, they've been there, they're not scared. This is like almost where they switch in and they go, right, okay, game faces, boys. We've been here before. We know exactly what we need to do. You work hard, you hit your targets, and you get the job done. Like the Everton players, they look like they've never been in this situation before and they look terrified. Yeah, also if you look at the Burnley, Burnley's run, so to say, mm-hmm. coming into this game, they had scored one goal in their last five, and yeah. they had lost four consecutive games before this win against Everton. They're so not a good team. They are not a good team. Yeah, like These are worrying numbers for Fat Frank. Well, this is exactly, yeah. And to concede three is like, it is really bad it might be the most Burnley have scored in a game this season I'd have to check I'd be surprised if it wasn't um and I think yeah just the lack of um ability from Lampard to be able to get the defense organized their lack of ability to defend from set pieces especially against a team like Burnley where you know they are going to nail set pieces like it just seems like again massively undercoached and after the game his his comments I found it really interesting there was a little sentence that maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into Maybe I'm trying to find something. But he said, um, we're going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep fighting until the end of the season. So I think he's already thinking, I'm out of here at the end of the season. Now, I'm almost certain. I'm, I am certain he said it. Maybe it was just a turn of phrase. But I think there was something there where he's already looking at the door. And I think his bosses might already be looking at the door as well. Like, he has not won a single away game. They've lost eight of the ten games he's been in charge. Um, he has a worse record than Rafa Benitez. He has less experience than Rafa Benitez. I think as much as we said sacking Benitez was the right idea, hiring Frank was not the right idea. They could have got a much better replacement. We've seen with Leeds, right? They've taken basically at the same time, they took the... No, well, just after Frank Lampard, right? Was it much after? But Leeds have basically... They've sacked Bielsa, right? A difficult Mm -hmm. decision. And they've got, so far, they've got the appointment right. They've nailed it. They've got Jesse Marsh. He's he's seen an upturn in form. Players have come back to fitness, which helps. But they've seen an upturn in form. He's getting his own ideas across. You can see that they're being coached by him in his philosophy. Tell me that's happening at Everton. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I want to look... think. I want to think that some big names would leave Everton. Say Pickford, Richarlison, mm-hmm. who's starting in the Brazilian national yeah, team. Do you it's... think he would play Championship football? You've got Calvert Lewin, Ducure, Iwobi. Mm-hmm. I want to say Alan is still there. Yeah, yeah. Alan. Uh, all they've all got... these players would would be leaving probably. And this is and this is something that I'm seeing a lot from people going. Well, it's a Championship squad. No, it's not. It is not. Like this is basically the same squad that Ancelotti had. Right, mm-hmm. they've or the players they added. They spent one point five million in the summer. Like this is the same squad that Ancelotti had, and he was getting much better results from. And players like okay, Calvert Lewin's been injured most of the season, but even since he's come back, he's looked completely lost. Richarlison can't do it all on his own. Um, like yeah, Alan Decore. These are good players. These are international players. Like. Th- I think saying this is a championship squad just takes so much responsibility away from the managers and from the people upstairs. Like this is a squad that should and could be doing better. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, we had a question from friend of the show, AFC Finners actually asking what happens to Everton if they do go down. And I think it's actually a very, very scary situation for Everton because they're tied into this deal of building this new stadium. Right. 
So the new stadium has to be built. It is going to be built, right? God knows how many hundreds of millions of pounds this thing is going to cost, and they're going to have to pay for it while they're in the championship. Now, obviously, they can still get out of it, but we've talked about their fixtures. I don't think they will. Having to pay for that stadium in the championship whilst relying on the parachute payments, which decrease every year, and people just assuming that Everton would go up at the first time of asking, like that does not happen often in the championship. That does the, not the, happen often. The, the championship has a reputation for being mm. a hard league. and the... I think it's one of the most difficult leagues in world football. Like yeah, no, it's I, just anybody can be anyone. The playoffs is always a mess. Like friend of the I show, think... Luca, whom we should contact mm-hmm. for another episode soon. But back in the day, there was a moment when he grew tired of Serie A, and it was just like, you know, there's only one league that is actually fun, and it's the championship because <laughs> you sit down and you don't know what the fuck yeah. is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, Some yeah. games and the 4 4 with nine yeah. players combined on the pitch, and you're yeah, just like, yeah, what have yeah. I just watched? And yeah. everybody just goes for yeah. it. While in Serie B, there, there will be those teams in very Italian fashion. To just you know play for the one point in the championship is just like right. We could win this game. We could win any game as we could lose any game. So it's very open spaces and teams just go for it. And I just want to think that if a standout Premier League name like Everton were to be relegated, every championship team would make it their goal to beat them that yeah, season in the championship. It is every team's cup final. Like they get two cup finals in a year. Like mm-hmm. everyone wants to beat them, right? And I think teams like Newcastle went back up at the first time of asking. I think Norwich did. I think maybe West Ham did, but there aren't many teams that have done it. Um, and I think to just assume Everton would is a big mistake. As you said, a lot of players would leave. I think a lot of players would be bought and would do very well elsewhere. I think if someone buys Richarlison, he's not going to be a complete flop. I have if someone so buys, much time for Richarlison. Like a player like Decore, I would take at Arsenal. Like I think he could be great in our midfield. And I think when they are sold or if they're sold they will go on and do really well at other clubs. And it will, again, just show more about how much of a mess this squad together is. And the fact, we've talked about it before, just the like the complete lack of joint-up thinking in who the managers have been and how it has just resulted in this hodgepodge squad that's just is no good for anyone. Like Players like Iwobi, Arsenal fans could have told you Iwobi was going to be a, a disappointment, and they spent £40 million on him. Like it's, there's some transfers there that are absolutely outrageous. And they have been... They are an advertisement on how not to run a football club. I'm sorry, Toffees, but it is rough out there. And like for Burnley to do you like that, it's brutal. And like again, the manner of the loss as well, losing in the 89th minute, you could just you could just see it. You can see it. I think now they've got United, then Leicester, then Chelsea. I think um, their results are getting their, their fixtures are getting pretty rough. Um, Tough times for Everton. Hopefully, we find an Everton fan who is willing to wipe Having their tears. Having said all that, come on to the show. <laughs> come on yeah. to the show, bud. It's going to be a fun time. We can talk about the future prospects at the club. But if it's everything in the Premier League, I think it's time to go to the responsible of the overshadowing of the Burnley-Everton game. He goes by the name of Karim Bezema, hailing from the city of Lyon with a white shirt and the number nine on his back. What I texted Rory yesterday after the hat-trick was completed was, all capitals, I am so fucking glad I have always, always, always backed the dream. 
What a back-to-back Champions League hat-tricks? Are you fucking kidding me? This guy at 30-plus years old, he's having the best season of his career in terms of goals and assists. Mm-hmm. He's in double digits in assists as well. And it's just a pleasure to watch. Like he, he, he feels inevitable, the ultimate striker. What did you think of his performance at the bridge? Well, you're right with his best ever season. 56 goals and assists in 44 games for club and country this season. And as Tommy said, he is 34 years old. He's a player like, obviously, I'm not going to start being all revisionist and being like, I always rated him. At the beginning of the season, I was like, I'm not having him at all. I think he's a pain in the arse. I think he thinks far too much of himself. I'm happy to admit that may all be true but I've been proven wrong. He is an unbelievable striker. He had, he should have had four. He should have had four goals. He missed a chance that definitely should have gone in. And I think he knows that that should have gone in. But the first two headers, he makes them look so easy. And neither of them are simple headers. The second one, is it where he has to steer it round Mendy, is an unbelievable finish. And again, he's just someone that at the moment, it's like a massive football cliche, but like, Everything he touches turns to goals. He just can't do anything wrong. And like the partnership that he has with Vinicius Jr. And again, this is a player that I think at first people were unsure of. He was very raw, um, a few too many tricks, not much end product. But you can see again that Ancelotti, I think, has really, really pushed him on levels and the partnership they have together. As you said before the recording, Tommy, going going from don't pass it to him, he's against us, to now one of the deadliest partnerships in the Champions League is quite the turnaround. The given goal for the first goal, mm. so sexy, just between Vinicius Jr. and Benzema, and Benzema just starts the play and finishes it wonderfully. And I have so much time for the second header too. Just catching the goalkeeper off balance and uh, hitting the, the post that mm-hmm. the goalkeeper is not expecting. Again, as you said, making it seem so easy, but it's so bloody hard away from home in the Champions League. We'll get to the other goals, but I just also wanted to say, did you expect such an offensive display of football from Real Madrid in the first half alone? I really didn't. I really didn't. I was surprised at just how much they went for it. And I was like, Chelsea are absolutely struggling here. But I think Ancelotti maybe smelled blood. I think there's a thing with Chelsea that people forget. They had Chilwell, right? Mm-hmm. And they miss him massively. I think Aspilicueta has been a great player for that team. He's been a great captain, great defender, but he's he can be caught out at left wing back. And I think if they've got Chilwell, maybe that doesn't happen. And I think Ancelotti maybe could smell blood a little bit, saw that they'd conceded four at home at the weekend to Brentford and thought, okay, if we just go for these, I reckon mm-hmm. we can kill the tie in the first game. And I think famous last words, but I think they've killed the tie. I think that third goal really did put the nail in the coffin. Um, I didn't expect Real Madrid to be that offensive, but what a game of football. It genuinely was a beautiful game and, to watch. what a manager um, Ancelotti is. He can, go to, he can go to Paris and wind up every single football fan in the world with very defensive football, yeah, zero yeah, shots yeah, on yeah. target, and then overturn the lag completely in Madrid and then go to the bridge. And when everybody's expecting, ah, they're going to be quite defensive, they're going to see the tie out. No, they're up 2-1 in the first half already. Mm-hmm. Um, and also we have to talk about Karim Benzema's ability to just brain freeze 
the goalkeeper that he's putting pressure on. This is becoming a trademark of his. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Mandy, that that mistake is bad. Also, Rudiger doesn't control the ball properly. I think Rudiger had a bad, a very bad game in general. I don't think yeah. he played well at all. He got caught out of position a lot. He was losing the ball. I think between him and Thiago Silva, uh, and I'm I'm worried that his wife. I'm going to wake up with his wife with a knife to my throat now. But like between the two of them, they had a terrible, terrible evening. Um, but yeah, I think Benzema. Can you imagine be like just seeing him run towards you at God knows what pace as you're trying to get no, the he's ball? Done away. It, he's like... done it. With, he's famously done it with Karius in the Champions League final. Then he did it with Ulreich for when he was substituting Neuer at Bayern Munich. Most recently against Donnarumma and now against Mendy. Now, what I really don't like about this play is how confident and full of himself Mendy. A goalkeeper that I love, mm-hmm. just chests that ball, takes his own sweet time. As Benzema, he's like he's he has been doing that the entire game, just like putting pressure on the defense, putting pressure on the defense. Just you know, you're down in the game. Don't act so cool, and in fact, then you're punished. Um, it's I think it's fifty fifty. I would say. 65% responsibility from Mendy and 35 yeah. from Rudiger. I think it's a poor pass. It. It's a poor yeah. pass, but Rudiger can definitely do better with it. Um, but then it's a tap-in for Benzema. And just, there was one other thing, I want, or two other things I want to talk about in this game. Courtois was absolutely the difference in this game. He made some unbelievable saves. Um, the one on think... Azpilicueta. He yeah, yeah, yeah. all the way to the top corner. In Italian, we would say, a togliere le ragnatele. Like, that ball was directed to the spider web between yeah. the crossbar <laughs> and the post, and Courtois protected he him. Made what a beautiful save. Unbelievable saves. Kept Real Madrid in the game at times. I wanted to give him some flowers, but also... Have you, or can you think, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you think of a player who has self-destructed their career quite as much as Lukaku? Man, that had, are you referring to that header from... The two, two he had two chances yeah, yeah, yeah. to score, the, by the way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That header from two meters, I was like, oh no, big Rom, oh no. I was like, it's all good. And I think, I'm genuinely trying to think of a player now where I think you've, through your own choices, you've completely destroyed all the progress you made. I'm trying to think of someone else. I honestly can't think about it. I think it's honestly impressive how much Lukaku has destroyed his own career. I think, and now we've we've talked about it, I think, before, or maybe it was off mic, but the fact that if now there's stories about Rom wanting to come back to Inter, I'm not sure Inter fans would war- welcome Man, I, him warmly. Like, literally 10 minutes before we, we met online to record the episode, I went downstairs to get a coffee at the bar, and in Italy, the bar tabacchi is where you hear yeah, fans yeah. talking to each <laughs> yeah, other. Yeah, and there yeah. were four Inter fans just having a spritz, and they were just like, fuck no, Like if Lukaku comes back, I'm not going to be happy. Like That guy... Yeah. He turned his back very quickly to Inter and now... At the first chance, really, at the first chance, right? Yeah, so I thought it was a really interesting, or just, not even that, just impressive way that Rom has destroyed his own career. And I think the fact that we had the most clinical striker on the planet at the other end in Benzema really just highlighted it because it really could have kept or given Chelsea a chance uh, to stay in the tie. I think taking it back to the uh, Bernabeu is going to be pretty difficult. It's going to be difficult. 
Chelsea, seven goals conceded in their last two games in the Premier League and the Champions League. I wanted to talk quickly about one player uh, that I thoroughly appreciated, Rhys James. I feel like he was oh. the only one. Mm-hmm. I feel like he was the only one in the game who was really trying until the, the end. The rest of the team kind of looked like struck still, like dumbstruck from the loss against Brentford. It didn't feel like, I don't know, it felt like something was up at the bridge. And the beautiful goal by Havertz, beautiful pass by Jorginho. What a beautiful assist. Um, that ball was inch perfect for the header. The header that gave temporary hope to the Chelsea fans. And uh, about Real Madrid, another player that I have a lot of time for that doesn't often make the headlines, but I think is great at Real Madrid. And I've been keeping my eye on him for some time is Federico Valverde from Uruguay. What a player. What a player. And uh, he, on the right, like he created so much space. He did so much. Vinicius Jr. almost scored a beautiful goal on a play that was... Uh, built and um, and planned by Valverde. And then I have to say that seeing that midfield, the cross, Casemiro and Modric, it's, um, there, was, there was a great piece of Rivista Contrasti today that was talking about how Real Madrid can give you, this Real Madrid team can give you a nostalgic feeling okay. just by watching them play. Like that midfield, whenever mm. they are going to part ways, we are going to miss one of the greatest midfields in yeah. the history of football. I think again we've 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 talked about it before, maybe, but the fact that that midfield they have with Modric and that is so underrated still. Though people actually won't realize how good it is until they're gone, and isn't that always the way? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Um, but for Real Madrid, they take a first step almost into the semi-finals. Elsewhere. Ooh. Now, we were very dismissive of this result, Tommy. We we kind of barely gave it a sentence, as we said, Bayern Munich, or I said Bayern Munich would win 4-0. But Unai Emery, what is... I see, maybe, I see, I maybe see the Arsenal done. squad was a bigger had, mess. Have you we... headlined it, the Emery Montada? It's beautiful, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, how maybe the Arsenal squad was even... It must have been such a mess because this guy, he's gone to Villarreal and now in a year, they've beaten Manchester United, Juventus and Bayern Munich, right? Some of the stats that came out about this game. Are you ready, Tommy? It's mind-blowing. It could have been been 3-0, this game. It should have been. It should have been. So, Bayern have scored at least once in 111 of their last 112 games, right? The last one was the 5-0 loss to Munchen Gladbach a, month, a couple of months ago. In 2017, Emery's PSG beat Bayern 3-0. Bayern then go unbeaten in 25 Champions League games and lose to Emery's Villarreal. Wow, that's insane. Good job for finding these little this little stats. I want to say at Rich Jolly, one of the best, best Twitter Twitter accounts to follow. So I'm not gonna take the credit, but that stat blew my mind. Fuck you, Rory. Go, Richard, keep doing what you do. <laughs> yeah, honestly, you have to follow him. Some of the stats he comes out with are unbelievable. Um but for Villarreal, now I think Tommy, you might owe an apology to to the Spaniards. You've 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 recently Claimed that the uh, the atmosphere at the stadium isn't the great, isn't that impressive? Well, now obviously this is a one 0 win yeah. against Bayern, but I thought the place was absolutely rocking. 
No, no, it was rocking before kickoff too. I want to say that maybe mm. they knew they were playing Juventus. So people were <laughs> it is boring as fuck. Right? <laughs> it is, but it's going to be boring. We're not even excited about it. Uh, and then the team, Bayern Munich, comes yeah. into town and everybody shows up. Man, this game was quite... I, of course, I didn't watch the, the full game. I did watch the highlights, but there was a goal scored at the eighth minute. Mm-hmm. Beautiful goal, by the way. I love how there is that touch that nobody's expecting and then it just like keeps uh, uh takes uh, Neuer off balance and it's a goal then there was a goal ruled for offside then there was a post and then what was Neuer doing <sighs> unfortunately um the player who shot the ball was no Stankovic otherwise that would have been a 2-0 and finally there was an incredible this is already this is towards the end of the game there is this 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 play just like first passes all across mm-hmm. the pitch they arrive in front of the goalkeeper and if it oh. wasn't for if it wasn't for Alfonso Davies who covers yeah. 30 meters in the space of 1.2 seconds <laughs> yeah. that would have been a goal you can see Alfonso Davies just turning the engine on and he's like all right I'm gonna get this one with the biggest diagonal mm-hmm. in defensive football he gets the ball, but scary stuff for Bayern. Unfortunately, I don't think this result is going to be enough no. to no, secure no. the leg. But we have a game in Munich, and I think that Villarreal are going to turn up for that game. Well, this is it. I think look, Villarreal will be as much as beating what Bayern Munich will go down in their history. They will be fuming they didn't put this tie to bed. They will be fuming that they didn't put one, even one of those chances away, because Bayern in Munich is such a different proposition. They're going to be pissed off now. You've made them angry. They're going to try and slap you. I think they're going to be so annoyed, but what a result. And I think Emery, if he's a great cup, he's a great competition, like cup competition manager. He got Arsenal to the Europa League final, right? He's won how many with Sevilla? He won it with Villarreal. Like we know in knockout football, this guy knows how to do it. I think Bayern Munich, they're always going to give you chances. But in Munich, I think they should they should really get the job done. But what a performance. What a job for, for uh, Villarreal. And the guy who scored the goal, Dan Juma, mm-hmm. really, really exciting player. He's only 25, but last season he was at Bournemouth, right, in the championship. He got... Um, 15 goals in 47 games. By all accounts, very, very good for Bournemouth. And Villarreal just pick him. And apparently already Liverpool are planning to make a move for him in one or two seasons. Like this guy has burst onto the scene. And it was he was in the right place at the right time. But he's been absolutely killing it for Villarreal this season. Good news also for um, the Dutch national team who are looking mm-hmm. for that firepower up front. Uh, they it feels like they their their puzzle is almost complete for the World Cup. But they him and Memphis it. would be quite exciting. I think yeah, him and Memphis exactly. together. I like they, that idea. They just miss a steady partnership up top. We have a long interview coming up, but still two Champions League games to review. Let's start from Man City Atletico one nil. I want to ask you something, Rory. Do you still love Atletico or is this the performance that has made you fall out of love once and for all? I'll answer my same question in a second. I think this game was absolutely atrocious. It was atrocious. I I blamed both teams. I thought, look, I, we know what Atletico are going to do. I didn't think, and the funny thing is, right, I said, this Atletico isn't as cynical. This isn't the Atletico that we know. They're a different Atletico. 
my God, this was the most Atletico I've ever seen Atletico, Atletico. Like, it was <laughs> brutal. But then for City, they just, they were just slow and unimaginative well, and just predictable. But, and- but at the same time, as Guardiola and De Bruyne said, when you play against the team, there are some yeah. there are some shots from that game that are incredible. <laughs> They're playing either yeah, yeah, with a 5-5-0 yeah. or with a 7-3-0. Yeah. And it's just like... How can you get past that? And these Joe players... Felix basically played left back the entire game. It's nice. incredible. It's incredible. It's... And I think again, now there's been a lot of people be like, "Oh, it's anti-football. It's disgraceful that Atletico nope. have turned up and done that." Nope. There's been a lot of that. And I think, well, also for Atletico, do you do, do you expect them to just go out there, play mm-hmm. open football, and get yeah. torn apart by one of the most expensively constructed squads in the world? No, they're not going to do that. What Simeone's job is, is to try and keep them alive in the tie. And this tie is not over. City are definitely capable of shit in the bed here. And Atletico are going to play so differently in Madrid. Like, That's it is thing. not going to be the same thing. That's the um, thing. Arrigo Sacchi today on the Gazzetta dello Sport. Man, what this old man just keeps speaking. He's just like, Simeone is not that great of a manager. Like, he never learns from... It's just like, what the fuck? He never learns? He's learned that he can play <laughs> yeah. this type of football yeah. and get scored only one goal against at the Etihad. And if it wasn't for uh, Phil Foden's pass, which mm-hmm. was unbelievable, oh. just like walking in the pitch, first ball you touch, you create the space in between these lines that are unbreakable. Mm-hmm. That would have been a draw, a nil-nil yeah. draw against Man City. And then you take them to your home where you have an incredible Champions League record. This game, the, the return leg is going to be intense. And this guy's doing his job brilliantly. Well, Simeone I... is going to be happy with a 1-0. He would have sat on that plane going back going, right, job done. We are, we can <laughs> yeah. still do this. We can still do this. I think, I think there's been a lot of, like we say in English, hand-wringing. Like a lot of people getting very precious about it and being like, Oh, it's it's just not right. How can they do that? Anti-football, et cetera, et cetera. I think, look, it's as much Guardiola's job to figure out how to beat Simeone as it is Simeone's job to figure out how to beat Guardiola, right? And I think everyone's entitled to play how they like. I might not like it. You may not like it. It may have caused me to sit on my phone for 89 minutes on Twitter rather than actually watching the game. But they've got the job done, basically. In the Wonder um, next week, or this next week, right? In the Wonder next week, um, they're going to come flying out the blocks. And if they score in the first 10 minutes, I think City are like really in trouble. Really, really in trouble. But this game was terrible. And finally, we've got Benfica 1, Liverpool 3. Um, I just, before we start, I just wanted to, just, just a little thing that I considered. Liverpool don't have two centre-backs. Liverpool have got... Do you know in the Lord of the Rings when they mold those sort of orcs? In the, <laughs> yeah, in the, yeah, they're both in the, fucking massive, eh? Man, Uruk-ai <laughs> is their name in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Konate, yeah, yeah. Like, these guys are 192 Konate and 193 Van Dyke. The average striker, I want to say he's around <laughs> 177, something like that. Yeah, 180, 185, maybe? Yeah, yeah maybe yeah, yeah. the maximum to your best. And you're, you know, you're dribbling, you dribble past the two players, okay? You're going to be running towards goal, and then you find yourself Konate and Van Dyke waiting for you. You're like, God damn it. Like, I'm not gonna, I can maybe run past one of these two, but both of them, um, then of course. And then they can get on the end of corners as well. 
Yeah, then Konate also had a mistake, <laughs> but still. Rory, what did you think about this game? Quite a comfortable win for Liverpool, who should be able to take control of the tie quite easily once they play at Anfield. I think, once again, the kind of st- standout names from this game, Luis Diaz, an incredible assist for Mane with the header. Many a striker or many a player would have tried to score from there, but what he does, he just heads it onto Mane for him to tap it in. Really good assist. The goal was very, very well taken. Um, and I think this player is just, he's only, the, the worrying thing is, Tommy, he's only going to get better. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, only 25. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And he's only going to get better by, like, the more Klopp coaches him, and that's just going to be obvious to say, but the more Klopp coaches him, the better he's going to get. This is the beginning, right? And the guy is fucking terrifying. Um the other two names I wanted to talk about, Trent Alexander-Arnold, possibly one of the best all-round footballers on the planet. Mm-hmm. Like, he, Agreed. his ability to pass, find space, he's just... People always, always pick on the fact that, for some reason, people want to drag him down. I'm not sure why, because every other English player gets spoken up a lot, but for Trent, it doesn't happen. I don't know what it is. And people like to focus on defensively, maybe he's not that strong. I think that is exaggerated. But when you look at everything else he can do, he is one of the best footballers on the planet. He is unbelievable. Um, the pass, Some of the passes he had in this game were absolutely beautiful. And the other player, with my Arsenal hat on, the second Darwin Nunez scored. I was like, no, 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 people are <laughs> going to be looking at him now. Fucking hell. Like, Don't draw too much attention to yourself, Darwin, otherwise we won't be able to get oh. you. I think that the 21 goals in 23 games oh, I know, I know, I know. already. <laughs> no, but you'd be surprised because I think a lot of people would go, oh, but it's only the Portuguese league. 21 goals is nothing. Now we scored against Liverpool. All the idiot football pundits that never watch any football apart from English in England will go, oh, this guy must be good. He scored against Liverpool. That's how it works. Rory, you have to mediate between Benfica and uh, Arsenal, and that will be your first move oh, as a as a scout, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Should I just start spamming Arsenal every day with emails? I'm a prof- I'm a professional scout, and I found a player you might really like. Darwin by, the, <laughs> by the way, a quote that I love from this game, actually from before the day before this game, that I absolutely it actually made me giggle. I read the news as I was on the subway, and I was like, "God damn it, that's funny." Um, they said the. They asked the Klopp in the pre-match conference. So, did uh, Luis Diaz tell you something about Benfica since he played for Porto until last year? Did he like warn you guys about something of their style of play and so on? And the Klopp went, "Yeah, yeah." He took the floor, but then we couldn't understand shit, so we stopped him after thirty seconds. <laughs> Which again it says a lot about the atmosphere at Liverpool. Yeah. It just sounds fun, like. All right, Luis, you want to talk to us about them? Then just starts speaking horrible English. They're just like, all right, just shut the fuck up. Okay, sit down. It was worth a try. Just, it was yeah, worth we try. tried. It didn't work. So going into uh, next week's, uh, are they going to be next week? I'm going to double check right now when the return lag is going to be. Of course, it's going to be next week. Benfica, Liverpool, Liverpool are, are leading 3-1. Villarreal, Bayern, Villarreal are leading 1-0. And these four teams are on the same side of the bracket. On the other side, we've got Manchester City, Atletico Madrid. The Blues are leading 1-0. And then Chelsea against Real Madrid. Los Blancos are, are leading 3-1. Ooh, we, could we see a, a Madrid derby in the semifinal? That would be interesting. I do like that idea. I kind of, I've got the feeling we're going to get another Real Madrid Liverpool final. You know, 
Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. And Liverpool have got revenge, but at the same time, I feel like if just they imagine were... if Allison fucks up. Just imagine if Allison fucks up. But imagine how big this would be for Benzema, like winning a Champions League where he is the protagonist of the team. No fucking yeah. Cristiano yeah, Ronaldo's yeah, yeah. Bales, Di Maria's. He is the protagonist of the team. That would be incredible. Anything to add in the Champions League, Rory? I think that's it. I think we're done. Of course, we're recording on a Thursday night, uh, and there is Europa League and Conference League action. Uh, but by the time you're listening to this episode, you will already know the results. I can just say, God damn it, Luis, because Muriel has scored against RB Leipzig. Yeah, of course he has. Why the fuck doesn't he score in Serie A? Why did I get him in fantasy football? If you have an answer, please hit me up. And Rory, it's finally time for our interview. How can you preview it? So this is a great guy, all-around legend, Seth Burkett, author, ex-footballer. He's been everywhere. He played in Brazil. He's played in Sri Lanka. He played out in Sweden. He's written all about it. He's now writing kids' books about football. He's writing books about how to become a better footballer. Really interesting guy. Some of these stories came out of nowhere and will blow your mind. Please enjoy it. Here we have Seth Burkett. Welcome to the weekly topic and this week I'm flying solo as Tommy is unfortunately not able to make it but thankfully I've been joined by a man whose football career has taken him from the south of England to central Brazil all the way to Southeast Asia and back again now writing books about his travels in the boy in Brazil and titans of the teardrop isle and giving tips on how to make it in football with play like your football heroes we are or I am delighted to welcome Seth Burkett onto the Anglo-Italian pod. Seth, how are we doing, mate? Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing very well, thanks. How about you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. It's Wednesday, halfway through the week, nearly the weekend. Can't Happy really days. complain. <laughs> Can't really complain. So, um, I discovered, or oh, I was put in contact to you through Paul Watson. I'm hoping you know him, right? Yeah, legends. <laughs> yeah, he is an absolute legend. He's a great guest. And he told me that we needed to get you on to talk about your football travels and your books. But I think we're going to start, we always start at the beginning on our pod and we ask about which team did you support as a child? Who were your footballing heroes and how did you get into football? Yeah, so I supported Peter United as a child. Um, when I was really, really young, Dad, took, my dad took me to watch Peterborough, um, Leicester City, Forest. And of those three, I chose Peterborough, which is probably... Okay, right. (laughs) It's probably not the ideal result, but it is my closest, most local team. Um, And had a season ticket from the age of seven up until 18. Um, Played in the academy there for a long time as well. Um, And, you know, I still do say I support Peterborough, but I I can't really get to their games so much anymore. Um, Growing up, my heroes were probably my first hero was Roberto Carlos. Um, nice. Okay. Yeah, just I, I, I love that that Brazil team. Just you know, when you're growing when you're growing up and you just get into football and you see Brazil with their kit and their you know their players and their the skills they have. And I remember Roberto Carlos especially because of the way he was left footed like me and mm-hmm. his free kick was just incredible. Um, yeah, I always find that I'm I'm a terrible footballer, but I'm also left footed, and I always feel like whenever I see a left footed footballer, I'm like. 
oh, that could be me. That could yeah. be me. <laughs> like, makes it feel a bit more relatable, right? A bit more relatable. Uh, I, I spent so many hours in the garden trying to do, you know, that free kick they scored against France with the outside of the foot. Yeah. I spent so <laughs> many hours trying to do that. So he, he'd be up there. Um, it would then go alongside um, Beckham. Mm-hmm. Rondinho probably my ultimate hero. Nice. Um, and then plenty of football heroes from Peterborough United, like Andy Clark, uh, Giuliano Grazioli. Grazioli, very nice. So, when you were growing up watching Peterborough, this would have been the Barry Fry years, right? Yes, it would have been, yeah. So, mainly when we were in Division 4 um, or League okay. 2 now. So, quite quite grim years, actually, to be watching them. Um, it's almost like since I stopped going as a season ticket holder, they've actually got quite good. Um, <laughs> I say that when the boss of the championship now, but my, my dad's still got a season ticket holder and he just comes, he just comes back after every game and says, oh, I can't believe the standard. It's amazing we're playing at this standard. So, yeah, now, it's, it's they, really improved. Now, well, there's something like So, I grew up watching Crew Alexandra. So, I think roughly at the time we would have been playing each other quite a yeah, lot. Yeah. I think Peterborough and Crew Alexandra have met each other a lot over the over the past. And I think I remember Crew being in the championship, and that feels like a different lifetime ago now. And you do realize that the standard in that division is very, very good. And it's only getting better. Like, over the past 10 years, it's improved so much. Yeah, I was I was just having this chat the other day. Actually, it's not even the championship, but non-league now. The standard um, is going more, you know, improving more and more, and it's the same throughout all the leagues. It's it's amazing to see, it really. Is it just comes down to I guess better coaching. Um, I think the academy systems had a massive, massive impact on football. Um, but I think ultimately it also comes down to money. And the fact is that Peterborough yeah. have you know six thousand people coming to watch their games, and then you're going playing against Fulham and teams like that, and you just Think even look in League One, you look at you know Sunderland's in League One, you think how cup and peace would compete. The fact they're in the championship is just incredible. It is, it is mad. And it's something that we've often talked about on this pod. It's the fact that it's like in Italy, obviously we're based in Milan, like in Italy, outside of Serie A, you don't really get attendances. Like I went to watch a Serie D match and it was me, a man and his dog, and like <laughs> the bored wives of the players. Like there was nobody there. And I think it does it is like one of the biggest differences in the footballing cultures that in England we do get, even the Alex get three, 4,000 a game. Like, and that is when I tell my students here, it kind of blows their mind <laughs> that that many people bother really. Um, yeah. Well, we'll talk about, so you said that you started playing and you started playing for Peterborough. How did that come about? Like, were you always, did you always stand out amongst your friends or? Um, yeah. So when I was in, I didn't, didn't like football initially. Um, even my, my dad's a big fan. And then when I went into year one, um, I had a teacher who's a massive Leicester City fan. Okay. So because of that, I got into football just because of my teacher. He'd let us play like championship manager in the class nice. and stuff. So nice. Yeah, uh, you know, we didn't do much work. We just got lots of football. Because um, of that, I started just kicking about at the school field. Uh, my dad would come out with me and he'd always pass my left foot to make me left-footed. Um, okay, nice. Give you that niche early on. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then PTB United just ran community sessions at the school, kind of did those, then invited me into their development centre. And then I guess I just spent a lot of time practising. Um, yeah. And then the development centre pushed me into the academy. Um, so I went as soon as you could under nine. So I, I, I never played Sunday League, actually. I, I, in some regards, I wish I did. I Throughout my junior career, I only had two seasons in Sunday League, and it, they were probably my two favourite seasons. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it was amazing to go into Peace United. Um, you know, the team that I supported, training three times a week. The, the, the academy manager at the time was a guy called Dan Ashworth, who's gone on to be the technical director of England. Um, nice. Just been signed by Newcastle to do the same job from Brighton. Um, 
you know, we had lot we had lots of incredible coaches at the academy. Um, lots of incredible players as well. I mean, Jack Collison was a couple of years above me. Um, we had, I think, of the ten players who started under nines, three of them represented their country under eighteen level. Um, so amazing to kind of be at that standard um, to learn so much. And it's also um, this would have been around nineteen ninety nine. Um, they were very forward thinking in that they had us playing futsal to develop our football skills. Um, they had us having talks with nutritionists. Um, wow. Even and that, that, that really made my family as well. Cause they, they did invite your parents along to these talks. Um, and it made my parents think, okay, we need to look at what we eat. We need to, it, it really, it, so I didn't get to play with my friends, um, which is a shame, but at the same time, like learning all this, all these things was absolutely incredible um, and a real privilege to be, involved at such an amazing academy i'd say well i think it's like a great thing like because again <laughs> crew alex were like really famous for their academy for a long yeah. time both for good and bad reasons now but the the like these clubs have to think of other ways to get an advantage right and being the club that's going to look at the nutrition or look at these different innovations is kind of how you get ahead what is it you think so futsal is going to come up again in, in in our talk i think but what is it you think futsal brings or adds to like the development of a footballer? I think the biggest benefit is being comfortable anywhere on the pitch. Um, mm -hmm. One of the key things, so I, I played futsal when I was eight, nine to develop football, but it's only weekly sessions, very informal. Um, around 18, 19, I started playing futsal seriously. And I remember about six months later, my football manager came to me and said, look, Seth, you can play 360 now, you can play anywhere on the pitch. Um, and I, I did, I went from playing centre-back to playing Know, number 10 on the wing wow. anywhere really. okay. um and because because everyone has to play everywhere but you, you can't just stick in defense you can't just yeah. hang out hang out front you have to do you have to do the dirty work it teaches mm -hmm. you how to defend aggressively it teaches you concepts such as high pressing um such as uh how to escape pressure as a two how to play yeah. in a three um and i think now actually um there's a lot of links between futsal and football they're calling it the game within the game so okay. yeah 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 was essentially just 2v2s or 3v3s all around the pitch um and futsal can give you solutions for that um there's more and more futsal concepts coming into football even even set pieces for example in futsal a lot of goals are scored in set pieces um that's done through blocking i'm sure you've seen in the premier league in the last season or two you've now got a lot of uh corners where players are going in to block opponents to then create space for someone to shoot yeah yeah, um, yeah and it's really interesting to kind of see that because that's not how people see futsal they see futsal as um very flary skillful yeah. players going 1v1 but actually it's it's that you don't really get many of those at all um it's all very very tactical which just surprised people and i think those tactics can really help to develop footballers and to enhance football teams yeah, yeah, no, I, th I think well, you're absolutely spot on. But I think because most people's like um, experiences of futsal, and I speak for myself, I play like calcetto once a week, and it yeah. is just kind of chaos because there's no structure to it, right? But I think if there is structure, you're able to make these like and really get the the advantages from it. Well, um, I, I do think the, the chaos actually is is probably where it's most beneficial for young players. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm speaking as an uh, adult player. Is that the biggest benefits are the crossover from tactics and how to escape pressure with a 2v2 but actually for the young players you want that chaos you want them to then kind of work out how to how to deal with that chaos that how to deal with that organization how to deal with such little time on the ball such little yeah. space to work in um it's the same way that kind of brazilian football talk about street football and, and say the benefits of that that's kind of 
for young footballers, that's how futsal should be used to just get them comfortable playing under pressure, really, and to enjoy the pressure. Well, so, yeah, it, it encourages improvisation, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, definitely, definitely. Okay, so in when you're in the Peterborough Academy, which position did you eventually find yourself in, or were you just Defense. moving around? No, it was the, the futsal wasn't that kind of. Um, sophisticated that we'd play properly because it was literally okay. just okay here's here's a futsal ball go and yeah. the futsal ball is smaller it's weighted so you can't boot it go and play in the sports hall for an hour uh, mm-hmm. which was great but I, I my whole junior career I was stuck in defense um, okay. whereas actually now I kind of play anywhere um, but yeah all, all throughout I, I started left back when it was seven side and then as soon as it was 11 side I was centre back and that was me until the age of 16. Okay, nice. Well, the fact you used stuck in, I get the feeling that's not where you wanted to play. What position would you have wanted to play? Um, I, well, I was—I would say I was quite a good player to coach, and I just do anything the coach told me to. So okay. I was—I was very happy there. Um, I think I could read the game quite well at centre back. The only thing is, I and I still aren't very good at heading. No, I, it, <laughs> terrifies really me. it terrifies me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> likewise. So. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, as soon as I started playing men's football, they said, look, Seth, you can't play. You can't play centre-back. You'll stick thin. Um, you're going to get bullied. Well, by the ball. Yeah. yeah. You stick thin, you can't head the ball. Go, go and play left-back. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. So, you're playing in Peterborough, but then you get an opportunity to go elsewhere. How, um, does, this, how does this come about? Or how did you find yourself with that opportunity? Well, I, I kind of had a bit of a messy young playing career so I got released a lot of times so I played in the Peter Academy got released went and played for Northampton uh, got injured there a few for quite a while got released went and played Sunday League for two seasons got signed again by Peterborough um, and then when it got to under 16s got released um, there's actually a programme called Big Ron Manager um, this is going a long way back now on Sky on Sky 1 right yeah 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 I remember that show yeah yeah, yeah. so one, one of the segments for Big Ron Manager was um Big Ron would come and sort out the youth system. Um, okay. And so we played a game against a team of trialists and Ron Atkinson chose a left winger called Sean White and he's saying, right, he's going to get an academy contract. Fine. Um, but then Barry Fry chose a left back called Danny Andrew and said, right, he's going to be my left back. And so the next week they kind of called me and said, right, Seth, you can't play left back anymore. Um, you can't play centre back you're too small. You're not going to be six foot. Um, so... Yeah, you're gonna have to try and play like up front. I was like, "You what?" <laughs> okay, right. Uh, I was absolutely terrible, like in attack. Um, and to be fair to Barry Fry, Danny Andrews still plays as professional now. I think he plays for Fleetwood, maybe in League One. Uh, he's oh, had a really right. good career, so there's no hard feelings on my part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I got released, and um, I went and signed to my local semi-professional club, Stamford. Um, they play mm-hmm. in Step Four. Um, I think. They kind of bounce between step three and step four. So the Northern Premier League, Division One South, or okay. they, they rename it every season. Uh, back when I played in it, it was Unibon League. Mm-hmm. Um, signed there. Um, at this stage, I kind of, I really want to be a professional footballer. Um, was quite realistic about my chances. My parents were quite kind of in my ear about that as well. They're saying, look, Seth, you can go and play non-league football, get paid good money to do so. You can go to university, have a good job and have a nice life. Mm-hmm. But still, I was like, well, I would quite like to be a professional, you know, give it a go. Mm-hmm. And actually, that kind of reading, so I'd, I'd always been really into reading. Um, I think it's like, because I was quite competitive, but I remember 
in primary school, you'd have teachers would say like, oh, who's read the most books this term? So I'd always want to win that. So because of that, I read a lot. Um, and two books in particular kind of really got my attention. It was uh, Vinnie Jones and Peter Crapp's autobiographies. Um, both of them have played professional football in Sweden for a season. Um, and I just read those chapters and thought that sounds incredible. You know, I've, I've always loved going abroad, um, get really excited by family holidays abroad. Nice. And being able to go abroad and play football is great. And it's thinking, you know, obviously Peter will release me. It's going to be hard for me to get a professional team in England when people don't think I'm good enough. But mm -hmm. there's loads of professional clubs out there. Uh, maybe the style in other country suits me. So after that, I just emailed, like, I Wikipedia every single club in Europe, basically, that was professional. And I'd, I'd go through all the contact lists and send emails out. And didn't really expect anything, but, you know, still lived in hope and just always hoping to have one club say yes to me. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple of kind of lukewarm responses in Sweden. I've actually got distant relatives in Sweden. So I went over there, nice. um, spent a week training. I can't remember the, team, the team's name. They're in Uppsala. Okay. Most um, relation is they, they lecture in the university there. Um had the week with Andre Teen Teen and said, yeah, yeah, you can come play for us, but we are amateur. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was nice. I did, I did quite like the lifestyle over there. The, the mm. football was quite a nice standard. They got quite a few people coming to games. The facilities were nice. Um, so it's a good experience. Um, I think the chance to live in Scandinavia would be great, right? And as you said, like the footballing culture there is pretty strong. I imagine yeah. the non-league there is, is fair. Yeah, decent, yeah. Right? It, it, it was good. And I kind of came back almost reinvigorated and just mm -hmm. kept on messaging clubs. And um, I've always found that the kind of the hardest, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And that was mm -hmm. very much the case uh, for me. Um, so we had, in my games at Stanford, I was I was kind of semi-involved in the first team. Um, I was in the squad getting minutes here and there, but mainly I was playing the under-18s. Uh, we had this guy start to come watch our games because, and one one new guy starting to watch your games is a big talking point because we're yeah. playing from two two men and their dog. So yeah, yeah. who's uh, that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it it really stood out that this person came to watch our games. And there was lots of rumours saying he's a scout, he's an agent. Um, it turned out those rumours were true. So he was the agent of Denilson, who just signed for Arsenal. Very um, nice. A player I remember fondly for a bit. He was quite promising for quite a while, I think. He dude. was, yeah, he yeah, was. Yeah. Um, actually, through this contact, I went round to Nilsson's house, chilled out of here. Which oh, is nice. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Being an agent is quite new to Anderson, so he actually worked full-time in Ask in Stanford, uh, in addition to okay. um, right. being an agent for Nilsson. He found out Stanford had a non-league football team and he thought, right, I can put some of my Brazilian players through Stanford to then get noticed in England. He also started to come watch under 18s. Um, he then liked it. He came and watched more and more. He actually selected three of us. Uh, three of us went over to a team called um, Estrella de Amadora in Portugal. Uh, he got us a week long okay. trial over there. Um, that was a team that Bebe from Man United, he played for them for a bit. Um, wow, right. Yeah. That was, that was a really cool experience, actually. Um, we. <laughs> They were playing in the top league at the time, but the facilities were, were not good. I remember they only had um, they only had half of the floodlights worked on down one side, uh, and then there's no there's no fence between the astroturf and the railway line, so it wasn't oh, like <laughs> losing twenty balls a game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. But the, the standard was the standard was really good. Um, the coach did his best to say it to us. He said, "Oh, 
We play Sporting, we lose. We play Benfica, we lose. We play on else, we win. We are the number one loser, he said to us. Oh, yeah, right. Nice. I like someone who knows where they are in the world. I yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the three of us did okay out there. Um, the coach, though, was obviously not that interested in us. He just called us. He called me Muh. He called one of the others Inglés. Okay, um, right. But it was a great week. Like, really enjoyed it. And again, it kind of whetted the appetite to play football abroad. Um what's it like going on trial? Like it's, it's a phrase that I've kind of, you hear people say I had trials. I've been on trial. Like, is it an intense experience? Is it like, like how long do you realistically have to prove yourself? And what is it like to go through? Uh, those, those trials abroad, like didn't really feel like trials. They kind of just felt like, Oh, I'm going to give this a go and see what happens. It, okay. I, I never really felt any pressure. I've, I've never, the only times I have felt pressure in a trial was probably when you have six week trials in academies when you were kids. Um, okay. Right. And even then, like, there's not that much pressure on you. You've, I've probably felt more pressure when I'd actually signed for the club. And the same for mm. every club. Like, you feel more pressure because you think, okay, you want to go on trial and you think I've got nothing to lose. Like, if, yeah, if it doesn't yeah. go well, then fine, I'll, I'll probably get another one. Whereas when you actually have a contract, you think, right, I've got this contract to lose now. There's people, yeah. you know, people always make the mistake that football is a team sport. And it, it's absolutely not a team sport at all. It's an individual okay. sport. And, and your teammates will do anything to make sure that they're the ones who get the contracts and not you almost. Um, it's a weird dichotomy, right? Because yeah. I always think this with, with goalkeepers especially, right? You're like, obviously I'm an Arsenal fan, so I'm looking at Ramsdale and Leno now, right? And on camera, they're like, oh, well done, mate, good work. And I'm like, they can't really think that though. They must be, Leno must be thinking, I want something bad to happen to you so I get your right. Like, <laughs> any, any footballer who says they want their team to win when they're not playing is lying. Like, right. sure. <laughs> yeah. I think also that is down to the academy system in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, like I think this this thing that's coming into youth football now about the score doesn't matter. I, I think in in many ways it's good, but also I do think that because I had that drilled into me as a kid that you know it's how you play and it's mm-hmm. not the score. I now I'd probably rather lose but play really well than okay. win and, and have a stinker, which mm-hmm. is wrong. It shouldn't be that way, but. That's why I think. Well, no, it is. yeah, it should all be about the result, right? <laughs> yeah, it really, it really should. But I, yeah. I do think that's something that's. I don't know what the answer is because mm. I don't think I don't think the answer is what we used to do, and that the result was the only thing that matters. Yeah. Um, because it has to be about development. We have to allow coaches to let players play with freedom. So it's it's a tricky one. <laughs> no, well, it definitely is. And when you see the parents who only care about the result, you see that that's massively a problem, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It is. It can become too focused on that. Um. So you're on trial in Portugal. Where else did you find yourself? Uh, so not long after, I found myself in Brazil because Anderson, who was the agent, he came to us and he said, guys, I've got this opportunity if you're under 18 team. Mm-hmm. There's a football tournament happening in Brazil. It's called the Copa do Este Julio. Uh, it's in Salvador. Would you like to take part? Uh, not only that, but the, the tournament organisers are so keen to have you, have an English team, they'll pay for everything. All you have to do is pay £500 each to fund the flights. So, oh, wow. Yeah. It was a no-brainer. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. Absolute, absolute no-brainer. We all went. Um, and when we got to Salvador, it was just really strange. Like like I say, we were used to playing in front of three people. And then at the airport, we were just mobbed by camera crews, photographers, radio presenters. And we didn't really know why. And the thing was that Anson hadn't really been very clear of the details. And the details have been hard to find anywhere. There's, you know, the, the website just showed last year's Copa do Julio. It didn't right. tell anything about the groups. It turned out we'd been drawn in the same group as Brazil national team, um, oh, which is why I was, 
such interest. Um, so Brazil's under-18 team are using the tournament as a kind of preparation for some kind of World Cup qualifiers or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever it was. Um, and, you know, Stanford under-18s didn't really compare to the teams that would be playing in the World Cup <laughs> qualifiers, I've got to say. So how would, like... Having this opportunity to go to a country that is obviously like the kind of holy grail of football, right? Like Brazilian football. And then you find out you're going to be playing against their national team. Like, what was your initial thought? <laughs> what, like... Mine actually was dis- disappointing because I was I was actually too old to play in a tournament. Um, so there was five of us. Because okay. um, it's done differently over there with the age brackets. Um, we weren't able to play. Um, but... Because just to kind of apologise for that, we went on we went on two week trial at a team called Vitoria, who played in the top league in Brazil. Um, and actually, what was even more annoying is I did actually play in tournament because after we lost eight 0 to Brazil national team, Oof. the coach was like, "Oh well, you might as well play because if we get chucked out of the tournament, then fine." <laughs> so <laughs> that's what, yeah, swings and roundabouts. Right? Yeah, yeah. Roundabouts. So it's was, it was still amazing to watch. I mean, they had Coutinho playing for them, and mm-hmm. Coutinho was incredible. Wow. There was eight, there was eight thousand people watching the game. Um, TV crowd. How much race. did he like? Was he just head and shoulders above everybody? Oh yeah, like he was outrageous. The whole Brazilian yeah. team was outrageous. What what kind of really surprised me? And it still does when I see professional footballers. Is just how big they all were. Um, okay, they right. they looked like men. Um, I always years. think this. Whenever I see a footballer on TV, I'm like, you're more of an adult than I'll ever be. And yeah, yeah. Like, like Vlavic is 23, and I'm like, I'm not that much of a man. <laughs> like, there's no way. I, like... In my mind, footballers are all still older than me, and I'm 31, so... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. I can't face the realisation that I'm that I'm past it. Like, yeah. there's no way. There's no way. Um, so then in this tournament, so you find yourself um, playing in Brazil. You lose 8-0, unfortunately. Um, but how does the rest of the experience go in Brazil? Like, What was the first, or what was the biggest difference in the footballing culture that you noticed? Um, everything was done with the ball. I think okay. probably the biggest difference is dictated by the weather. Um, even Brazilians found it quite hot because we were playing in the north. Um, so it, it felt like playing in a sauna, um, especially playing as a fullback where you're expected to get up and down the pitch. Um, it was really, really challenging. Um, so very skillful, uh, very much Marcelo Bielsa style, um, man-to-man players just popping up anywhere over the pitch. Um, so what, what probably I'd have thought would be tactical indiscipline coming from Europe, but probably actually was quite sophisticated tactics over there. It's just it was right. totally different to what I experienced before. So that was the hardest thing to adapt to. Um, but I, it was it was great. I mean, um, say train with Victoria for a, a week, and then at the end of at the end of the first week, the coach said, "Look, um, Seth, you've done really well for me, especially there's a tournament happening. There's a, a match. Sorry, we've got a friendly tomorrow, um, and our left back's being called up by the Brazil national team. Um, so we need a wow. player." He said, "Can you can you come and play in this friendly?" And after that, I was like, this is my big chance. This um, is it, right? Here we go. Yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. Um, Anderson, the agent, had brought in a coach to help us called Emerson. Uh, he was going to come along and watch. Um, and also, it was, it was great for me because to have, to be recognised by a coach from a top division team whose left back's just been caught by a national team to say, oh, Seth, actually, I think you're good enough to step in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, was amazing. Uh, my teammates were all pleased for me, um, but rather than help support me, I remember they uh, stole my bed the night before, and then they woke me up with shaving foam at midnight. So, <laughs> <laughs> is this was this like a hazing thing, or was this a yeah specifically I, for you? 
Uh, kind of like, well, not really a hazing. It was hazing star, but no, like I'd known him for about two years. So okay. <laughs> uh, we're, we're all bored sitting around. Seth's trying to get some sleep, so we'll, we'll do that. Um, Brilliant. Uh, I Brilliant. remember being naked and chasing them through the hotel, uh, which wasn't <laughs> ideal. <laughs> Uh, and then the match was, you know, midday kickoff. So that was, I mean, until then, I'd only really trained in the early morning, played in the evening. Um, and that was just, the climb was just unreal. Like, it was so hard. I just did the bare minimum because um, mm-hmm. I was knackered. But did well enough that Emerson, the coach who was watching, said, Seth, like, I, I'd, I'd like you to come back and play for my team next season as a professional. Um, he was going to take over a team called Sohiso. Mm-hmm. who were uh, quite a small team in Mato Grosso, a central state in South America. They're ranked 350th, I think, uh, by the CBF. Okay. As soon as 800 professional teams, that was not bad. Um, top off. Top yeah, exa- exactly, top exactly. Uh, Emerson, he was going to be the coach um, for their Copa Sao Paulo campaign. So the Copa Sao Paulo is essentially the Brazilian FA Youth Cup. Okay. It's played right. in, in January, um, so all in one month. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a massive, massive tournament. It's always where you kind of see the next Brazilian star. Okay. Um, the, the star actually that came from the tournament I played in was Lucas Moura. Um, he was a top wow. scorer. Um, but it's, wow. it's very, very well attended. All the games are on ESPN, um, on Globo. Uh, crowds, you know, we, we're having 15,000 people watch our games in those tournaments. So it's a massive, massive thing out there. Um, That's incredible. And, yeah. so like, and, and is the atmosphere in the stadium just a different level? Because you imagine like the South American crowds in general anyway, but a Brazilian playing in front of 50,000 Brazilians, the atmosphere must have been pretty lively. Oh, right? 15, sorry, not 50. So it was, yeah, yeah um, 15, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, what's really strange though is that that was under 18 football. So under 18 football had 15,000 people coming to watch. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, this is skipping forward quite a lot in the story. When I was with the professional team, we had 800 people come to watch, 1,000 people come to watch. So it was always... Wow, it was right, strange. Okay. The Copa Sao Paulo was almost like prioritised ahead of the State League, um, which had quite modest attendances, whereas the Copa Sao Paulo had massive attendances, real interest. Um, I mean, it got, cra- it got so crazy that I was literally... I was on like national TV every day and they even filmed me sleeping and like, that one evening, I, I, I like big brother. Yeah, I totally <laughs> go. I'm still like myself sleeping, and then I had like after that, I had a chat show saying, "Oh, we can't wait to see Seth, the great English left back, um, come and play in our tournament." It's a real, and for them, it's a real honour to have an English person coming over to Brazil because they see English people as the inventors. They call us mm-hmm. because they yeah, yeah, they yeah. are we invented football. So it was a great honour, and they they couldn't they you know there's a lot of excitement about me coming to play for them. Um, which really well, at least they me. didn't film. At least they didn't film when they stole your bed. That would have been worse, right? At least they just got you sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my Brazilian teammates when I got out there, they had a lot of fun with me. They they really loved taking the nick out of me, um, mainly because I kind of went over there thinking that they'd all speak English. Um, okay, right. I was eighteen and like very naive, I suppose. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It turned out that only one of them spoke English and he didn't live with us. And I tried and failed to learn Portuguese. So they they used to have great, great fun with me. Uh, just, you know, getting me to say stuff which meant something else. And, yeah, 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 um, yeah. But it is but well it was, how you still managed to communicate, right? You still managed to find a word. Yeah, yeah. I think like, you know, in school I did German for five years and learned nothing. And yet in yeah, probably yeah, two yeah. months in Brazil, I picked up Portuguese well enough to speak to people, mm-hmm. have yeah, conversation. Yeah. Um, so being surrounded by it was was good. And I'd say within a week, I kind of picked up the very basics. And, sign, you know, it's through sign language, you can pick up a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just point and shout, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the coach early on started saying, Sefi Boha. 
so I, I learned that bowl how was a was a quite bad word. Very oh, yeah. early. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Yes. <laughs> so you, you get this contract with this new team. Um, when you get there, what's the city like? What's the team like? What are your first impressions of the squad? Uh, my first impressions were very bad, unfortunately. Um, oh. I kind of I came to Brazil. Uh, fortunately, I watched City of God after coming to Brazil, so that was good. But I, you know, you kind of you learn in school. Uh, amazing film, but you know, kind of scary on reflection. Um, but I, I kind of, you kind of come to Brazil, and you you know, in school you learn about favelas, you learn about the crime in Brazil. Um, my mum was terrified I was going to get shot in Brazil. She was even more scared that I was going to find a girlfriend and get married out in Brazil and never come back home. That's the biggest fear. Um, so kind of came came to Brazil with like a bit of trepidation, really, um, but also kind of thinking, well, I'm going to be a professional footballer, so like, it's going to be a nice life. Um, it took me 40 hours to get to Sohiso. It's really in, it's, it's in cleared rain. So it used to be the Amazon rainforest. They've cleared it to make Sohiso a new city. Um, it's in the middle of nowhere. Like when I say to Brazilians, I was in Sohiso, they always say, why? Um, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. I think that also added to the stories that people mm-hmm. just couldn't go over. I'd gone to what is essentially farming country. Um, I got there and the chairman picked me up. But he didn't know that he was supposed to be picking me up. He picked up a goalkeeper from Portugal called Michelle. Okay. And I, was, I had to beg him, say, no, like me, Seth, I'm coming to Sohiso. He said, no, 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 only Michelle. And so I kind of got into his car, like a bit unsure if I was being kidnapped or if I was in the right place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Send an SOS text. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he kind of, he stopped, to, well, I, stopped, I thought he stopped to get petrol. And he's like, Seth, Michelle, out. Uh, got our suitcase out. I was like, are we, are we being dumped here? Um, but what it was, was this garage had been bought by the football club and the football club had uh, converted it into a house for the whole team. So it had three bedrooms and there were 28 of us in there. Oh my God. Um, it was absolutely filthy. There were bars in the windows. Uh, there was sewage running outside the back door. There were no doors on the toilets. Um, it was... this sounds like world's toughest prisons. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was like that's literally what my I sent my I sent my mates a picture. They said I thought you were a professional footballer, not going to prison. They they generally said that. Um, <laughs> you know, there's like a toilet brush on the dining room table. That's that's like my lasting memory. It's just like walking in and seeing this toilet brush on the dining room table, and then just like slowly it got worse and worse. And I just like this is my reality now. Um, mm. It wasn't even my reality because they they I wasn't allowed to train with this team for the first week. Um, I think. There was some issue over contracts. I because I didn't speak the language, I didn't really know what it was, and I, I was yeah. really homesick for that first week. So I had a really bad first impression. The thing which really helped me was the, the teammates. My teammates were amazing. Okay. Um, we bonded straight away because they get me to stand up in the room and say swear words. Uh, and, <laughs> right, and, nice. yeah, yeah. and then, you know, I, I signed a two-year contract, um, or I thought I signed a two-year contract. Um, mm-hmm. I got someone, so uh, one of the directors' son spoke English, and he he helped me a bit and said, "Yeah, this is all legit." Um, and I was allowed to train, and after that, it was much easier. Um, quickly became very, very close friends with my teammates. Um, you know, this is back in 2009 where to go on the internet, you had to go to the internet cafe for an hour. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had an iPhone, which you know, a very early version of the iPhone, they all found it amazing, fascinating. So, I never actually had my iPhone because one of them would be playing on the games on it. Um, <laughs> so because of that. Right. We trained for five hours a day. There was two, two and a half hour sessions. Uh, we had Sunday afternoons off. Um, but when we weren't training, we were just socialising, sitting around chatting, playing table tennis. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and it was it was amazing. Um, and I loved like hearing stories of my teammates. Like, 
and so I learned the language more and more. I got to, like get more of an insight into them uh, and just what interesting lives they had. Like we had quite a few come from favelas. Oh wow! And just right. like okay. yeah, hearing kind of their stories. Like one guy Fernando, it always sticks with me. Like he, we were there for uh, three months until the Copa Sao Paulo, pretty much, mm. um, and he'd come with everything, his whole life in a backpack, and he had a pair of shorts, a vest. Pair of football boots, flip flops, and a toothbrush, Jesus. and that was literally it. He had nothing else. It. And he'd say to me, Seth, like he said, in in Rio, I can't go outside. Now he'd say, Look, I have this is my house. I have one drug gang this side, one drug gang yeah. that side, and they shoot at each other. He said, You can't go outside at night. And he said, The worst thing though is the police because the police just come and storm the favelas, and they think that everyone in the favela is a criminal. Yeah, hardly, hardly anyone actually is a criminal in the favelas. It's a mm-hmm. real low percentage. But the police, he said, just start firing. He's saying to me. When the police fire, I have to just go under the table and hope that none of the bullets hit me. Jesus. And I like heard that and it really helped my homesickness because I was yeah. like, what can I complain about? Because the fact it's is that Fernando was always yeah. so happy and like he was always laughing. He'd always say, Sefi, Sefi, vos e tu tamaño dos seus sonhos, which means you're the size of your dreams. And like, okay, wow. Just how positive he always yeah. was. Like, it taught me so much about life. And I've mm-hmm. taken like, I'd say Fernando's had the biggest impact on my life. Like, wow. After being with him, like everything, I always try and see everything in a positive light now. Um, and I just always think things happen for the best because that's what Fernando thought. And he was so, so, he's just a joy to be around. He taught me so much about life. That's incredible. Are you, are you still in contact with him? No. So because cause he, this is before the internet and before um, phones, really. I just yeah, lost yeah, yeah. I'm in contact with a lot of people from Brazil still. And actually, Fernando's story, now that I write books, it's um, I'm currently writing a, a book fictionalising his life. Oh, um, wow. Nice. I'm not in touch with Fernando. I'm in touch with Leandro, who also came from the Vellas. Um, okay. And I, I messaged him and said, like, to make sure that it was as accurate as possible. And I said, mm-hmm. like, you know, cause it's, it's a children's book, so the, the message is, you know, gangs are bad. And I yeah. said, that, is this accurate? He said, to be honest, Seth, no. The, the gang in uh, Rio were so supportive of my football. They were really, really good to me. <laughs> oh, wow, right. Okay, that's going to be a hard one to sell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I said, okay, well, maybe I'll change that. I'll, I'll stretch the truth in that one a little bit because I don't think that's a good message just to send to kids. <laughs> yeah, just a like really friendly drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. So what do you think, like, beyond Fernando, what... Well, that as well. But what did you learn from the experience from Brazil? What did you take from it, do you think? Um, mainly about life. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. coming as an 18-year-old, just having to grow up so much, like having such tough conditions to live in. Um, I think the tough conditions were really, really important. And actually, they said to me, they said, Seth, in England, why do your young players get given so much so young? How can they still have yeah. fire in their bellies? So they do it on purpose. Um, I learned a lot about mental toughness, I think, out there. Okay. Um, I, I don't know about football. Um, the fact is, uh, in the Rondo circle, I think, is the most important thing that I learned almost. In Brazil, in England, the ball just zips around the Rondo circle. You always yeah. have to get to the other side. Whereas in Brazil, they, they just always sought to draw the pressure in. Yeah. So yeah, the yeah. best thing you could do in Brazil was you could pass it to the person next to you, suck in both defenders, and then nutmeg one of them. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Just little things like that kind of really changed my appreciation of the game um, and taught me a lot about actually being under pressure is good. Um, it means you can exploit. So I, I learned a lot about football, a lot about tactics. Um, and then when I got a contract with the professional team, I learned even more. Um, and I mean, going back to the Copa Sao Paulo, um, mm-hmm. I played I played in the youth team, but I was very much second, third choice left back. Um, 
all these TV crews saying, we can't wait to see Seth. All these chat shows saying, we can't wait to see Seth. And then tournament started and they realised actually Seth wasn't very good. And some <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden it goes very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But literally, so, but then because I'd got them all this media coverage, this very small club in Brazil, mm-hmm. the chairman was so angry. I didn't, I didn't play a single minute in the Copa Sao Paulo. Right. Okay. The chairman was so angry, he sacked the manager and he gave me a professional contract. And wow. he did okay. that purely because I'd got them all this media coverage. Um, when I started the professional club, I was sick for choice left back. Um, and I was the worst player. I, I don't think I was so bad I stuck out. And I do think that with a bit more time, I could have integrated to be like the backup left back, potentially. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, still way off it. Um, but, you know, playing playing in professionals, I learned so, so much. Our captain was a guy called Capone, and he previously played nice. for Galatasaray. He'd oh, won wow, the UEFA right. Cup. So they, it was when they beat Arsenal in the final of the UEFA Cup. Um, he played in that match. 2000? Around the 2000? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he, he played, but he was Galatasaray's right back. And then they went wow. and played Real Madrid in the Super Cup and they beat Real Madrid. Um, so, you know, to be lining up alongside him, I had the, one of the first choice left back played with Kaká at Sao Paulo in the youth team. Nice. The choice left back could play for Brazil on a 23s. And so, like, learning... <laughs> was definitely decent. Like. Yeah, and this is, and this yeah. is like the 350 of best team in Brazil. So, mm-hmm. like, learning from those players and kind of learning the intricacies of football, but also, like, from their experience about how to build a career, uh, which I actually, didn't actually do, but, like, it was just amazing. Um, also, what was really valuable to me, and which has obviously influenced my career now, is that I kept a diary out there. Um, and the, the characters I came across, so people like Fernando... I'd, I'd write down lots about them. Uh, one, of, one of the directors, Elias, who was openly gay um, in quite a homophobic society. Um, I learned so much from him. Um, so kind of writing about these characters actually taught me a lot about how to craft stories and how to kind of write interesting bits, which has then influenced, gone on to influence my books that I've written. So I, I learned so, so much from Brazil. Um well, that's amazing. I was going to ask, is the writing something that you'd always done? Or was it something that you saw, like, no. after football, you are like, oh, maybe I can do something here? Yeah, I've always wanted to do, like, interesting stuff, so, like, playing abroad. And, okay. like, writing a book, I was saying that I'd want to do at some point in my life. Um, mm-hmm. Creative writing was never a massive strength of mine. English was always a, a good subject, but okay. creative writing, you know, I was getting C's for it and, and whatever. Right. Um, but my grand, my grand was an author, so she was always encouraging it. Nice. But I'd, ne- I'd never gone and proactively written. Um, I just, I literally just kept a diary in Brazil because I thought it'd be interesting to look, to look back on. And also, I had so much downtime. Uh, okay, there's only, right. so, there's only so much, so many hours in a day where you can start and swear in Portuguese before. It yeah. <laughs> so I'd, I'd, I'd write, I'd write, and yeah, it started off from a couple of paragraphs to ended up being like a couple of pages and just going really in depth about what interesting characters. I mean, the chairman was just a. I'm sure he's a criminal, but he was a really interesting character. Like he's an interesting criminal, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, he, he kind of he kind of used to bring his girlfriend along. Like he used to take me out with his girlfriend, and he used to try and impress his girlfriend by speaking English, but he, he couldn't speak English. So he'd say like, "Hey, Seth, uh, one, two, three, uh, congratulations." And then down the line, when I ha- was having contract problems, um, he'd say, "Seth, congratulations." And they say, Seth, problem, problem. <laughs> what, what is it? What is it? Um, so That's real, real cool. character. Um, and then, I mean, what happens to the football club uh, just really kind of cats off the diary. So my personal situation was that I'd signed a two-year contract, mm-hmm. but three months into my stay in Brazil, 
Uh, and by this stage, I was with the first team, but there was no reserve team. And I was sixth, fifth, sixth choice left back. And uh, there were 33 of us at training. So my training was literally, I'd do the physical, like, up to that point, everything had been done with the ball. And I thought that was how it's done in Brazil. But right. with the senior team, it was all physical work and hardly any ball work apart from matches. So my reality of professional football was um, lots of running, 10 minutes at the end, and I'd have to spend about 10, 15 minutes standing as a wall for the first team to take the free kicks. So actually, it was a really, it was really training was really tough. Um, by this stage, we'd moved out of the garage and into a proper hotel. Um, mm-hmm. But there were six youth team graduates in the first team. We were given a two-person chalet between us. So again, quite tough conditions. Um, again, love being with my teammates, love being with them every day. But you know, football then was not always packed up to be. And like, yeah. kind of alongside that, before going out to Brazil, um, in the two months I'd had of the season in England, I'd actually been doing really, really well with Stamford. Um, I've been starting a lot of games for them, pushing okay. on. I was kind of, and part of me was kind of thinking I'd be better off actually playing for Stamford and getting noticed back in England than I would be mm-hmm. doing hardly any football out here. Um, so the kind of the dream had not died, but like was not quite as golden back then. Petering out a little bit. Maybe. Yeah, petering yeah. out. And I was like kind of thinking, I, I need to move clubs if I'm going to stay out in Brazil. Um, Anderson, who was representing me, was who's, who was trying to move me because Emerson yeah. was also his client. And he was saying like, go to Emerson in Sao Paulo, um, which I was considering. But after three months, uh, the chairman came and he said, congratulations, one, two, three. They brought someone who could actually speak English, and the guy who could actually speak English said, "Look, Seth, um, they, they haven't been able to sort your work permit yet. Um, you're still on a tourist visa." And I said, "I signed a two-year contract." He said, "Yeah, but that was just a piece of paper. Like, you need to go and fly to Paraguay and fly back to Brazil." Uh, the way that the league system works out in Brazil is that I'd only been there for three months, but I'd already played in the Copa São Paulo or okay. had that experience, and the the first team only actually had about a month left of their season. So I just, I was just like, I didn't trust them. By then, I thought, no, like I don't want to be stopped at the airport and just said, no, you can't come in. So I'm, I'm just going to go back to England. Mm-hmm. Um, so lasted another month out there. So I did four months in Brazil. Um, but when I got back, and actually when I did get back, I was taken underground by the police at the airport and interrogated, like literally interrogated for about 45 minutes. It was the most scary experience of my life. Um, was this, sorry, was this in Brazil or when you got back in the In UK? Brazil, in Brazil, in yeah, Brazil. yeah. They, um, when I tried to board the plane, they noticed that my my three-month tourist visa had been, I'd overstayed. And I had to beg yeah. them to say, look, like I've been to a football club, I thought that I had mm. more time. Um, but This is weirdly something that, and listeners to the pod may be familiar with this, but I had a very, very similar experience in Kazakhstan. And it's absolutely, I can verify it's absolutely terrifying. I thought um, I was going to prison. <laughs> yeah, I had two options. It was get out of the country or prison or pay. And that was the other one. Uh, that was the one they were very keen on, I'll be honest. Well, with you. yeah, so that's that's what I'm saying is that they, they let me go with a fine and I've still not paid it. So I'm, not, I'm technically banned from Brazil um, because I haven't <laughs> until I pay this fine. Um <laughs> And like when I was back in England, like I kind of thought like, oh, I, I maybe I should go back to Brazil. Like mm-hmm. I had Emerson saying, come to Sao Paulo with me. But then what happened in Sohiso really changed my experience because not long after I was back, the director, Elias, um, mm-hmm. was murdered. Um, oh. And right. he was murdered by his boyfriend. Um, that was the official line. But actually, a lot of the people I spoke to said that it was a hit job. So Elias, in addition to being a director of the club, he was also a local politician. And the rumour was that he was growing quite powerful politically and that one of his rivals had put the hit out on him. 
the boyfriend who stabbed him to death just went to the next state and never got caught. He's just living his life now. Um, so that happened. And then a few months later, just any decision to go back to Sohiso was taken out of my hands because um, the football club was shut down for money laundering. Um, it turned out there's a lot of corruption there. So Sohiso is a city was supposed to rival Brasilia by this stage. And the football club was also along the same lines. So a lot of the investment was going into the city and the football club. But it, that was in theory. In reality, like it was the money was going missing and all, all sorts. It was very, very dodgy. So, Has there been anything, was, like, have you heard anything or has there been any repercussions since or was it just I, the club I was didn't, folded and then... Cl- the club was folded. That was all I kind of knew mm-hmm. to my knowledge. Um, I like, spoke to one or two people about it and they gave me little bits, but not nothing too much. Um, the football okay. club still doesn't exist. Um, there is now, after about six years, uh, they did create a new Sohiso football team. Um it was under a new, it was a, I think it's called Gremio Sohiso. Uh, they're now okay, playing right. the Campionato Mata Grossense second state division. Um, so they're quite small now, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but like after seeing all that, it kind of really did get me to open my eyes and actually see that. Because I was 18 when I was out there, like I was very wide eyed. And actually, when I was that is crazy that, young, well, I have to keep reminding myself that is, yeah, yeah, that is young. <laughs> it, it, it really did make me think. I was like, actually. Brazil was very racist and very homophobic and it kind of made me see that actually there's a lot of problems in Brazil. Um, which when I was out there, I kind of probably turned a blind eye to. Um, and I had lots of opportunities to go back to Brazil. Um, I had maybe five football clubs get in touch to say, come and have a professional contract with us. I had even Fluminense got in touch to offer me a trial. Oh, wow. um, but every time I just said, I'd love to come, but I'd lo- I want a work permit sorted first. Yeah, and yeah. that was always... Um, the thing it fell down on. The Fluminese thing actually came about because when I got back to England, um, Arsenal started to look into the story because my grand always said that my uh, grandfather's uncle played for Arsenal and we were okay. like, oh, yeah, sure. Right, so the right, Arsenal right. Sort of looked into that and actually she was right. Um, my grandfather's uncle, Charlie Williams, was Arsenal's first ever goalkeeper. Oh, wow. And after playing for Arsenal, he then went to Brazil and he managed Fluminese. Um, and... Because of this, Fluminese wanted to invite me in for a trial, um, which would have been amazing, but it kind of never quite happened. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I think you're you're right. Like after after having such a scare with paperwork in in a different country, you want to have that peace of mind. Because I know that when I was in Kazakhstan, once it all started to go wrong, I couldn't wait to get home. <laughs> it was very yeah. much like I need to get home now. Um, yeah, and, and like I said, I was very much thinking I can go and do something at Stanford here. And I've, I've been offered a place at Loughborough University the following year. So I was thinking, yeah. well, I can go and play at Loughborough, a um, very good football programme. I can go and play in the Stanford first team and it'd be a great opportunity to be seen. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of players have gone and played for Macclesfield from Stanford. Okay. Um, I actually had um, Macclesfield was um, a potential for me to go and try that. Um, nice. But again, that kind of never quite happened um, when I was back. Um, but I did kind of think, well, I'll, I'll see what I can do in England because I do ultimately want want to go to England and, and play here. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you find yourself back at home. We are running slightly running out of time, so I need to kind of skip forward a bit. Yeah, but you find it, you find yourself in England, and then your next destination. Where do you end up next on the other side of the world, Omar? Yeah, I end up where in, do you find yourself? I end up in Sri Lanka, which actually is probably even crazier than Brazil, um, <laughs> right. the maddest country. I've ever known. Um, and what's really mad is that by this stage, I stopped playing football. So I went to Sri Lanka 10 years after Brazil. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I went to Loughborough and went back to play for Stanford again. And then after my first year in Loughborough, I broke my leg. Um, 
at this stage, I'd started playing futsal uh, properly. I'd started playing for the university um, and actually got in, involved in the England setup. And I was kind nice. of around the England setup when I broke my leg. And so when I came back from a broken leg, I thought, well, I broke my leg playing football. I could I could go and earn a couple hundred pounds a week playing semi-pro or whatever, and all and like trying to keep the dream alive. Or I could go and play futsal and represent my country. There's no money in it, but you know what? You know that is the absolute epitome of any sport is representing your country. Right, so exactly that's the dream, right? To get your cap, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I decided to go and just play futsal. Um, however, when I was 27, so quite a few years later, I got a, a message from someone who'd read my book in Sri Lanka. And they said, I've read your book, liked it, do you want a professional contract? <laughs> the, the guy rang me and I didn't even know they played football in Sri Lanka. I thought... No, well, I was about to say, I only ever think of cricket, really. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't really know anything about Sri Lanka. I, knew, I, I vaguely knew there's something called the Tamil Tigers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just a bit unsure. And like, I said to the guy, like, are you sure you want me to sign up? I said, I don't even play football anymore. I just play futsal. He said, Seth, how tall are you? I said, oh, I'm, about, I'm almost six foot. He said, Seth, you're my first signing for the Trinco title. <laughs> there we go, done, done. I, I said, hold, hold on a second. Like, I'm still a bit unsure. Like, my girlfriend was next to me on the sofa, just like oblivious to what I was saying, like that I was going to disappear for the whole summer. Yeah, you know, I thought I probably should get her I probably should get her approval first before saying yes. Um, I was like, wasn't there a war? He's like, yeah, yeah, but it's fine now, it's fine. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, I'm still a bit unsure. He said, Seth. There's one thing you should know. This football club is going to be owned by, by Mahela Jai Warder and Kumar Sangakara. And wow. after I was like, I'm yeah, in. Okay. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> to me, they're wow. like you know, two absolute legends of cricket. And and I thought, wow, that'd be incredible. I was like, actually, I can I can keep a direct there. I can write a book about it. Mm-hmm. If everything goes really well, I can ghostwrite either Mahela's or Kumar's autobiographies. So <laughs> Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, love I, did, it. I did say to him. Okay, uh, like the next day, I said to my girlfriend, "I'm going to disappear for the whole summer, probably longer." And she said, "Fine, good riddance." Um, <laughs> we are now engaged, so obviously we did survive that. But I did say to the coach, "I'll come as long as I have a work permit and a contract yeah. before I arrive." Mm-hmm. He said, "Fine." Um, the date came for me to depart, and I hadn't had a contractual work permit. The second date came, I didn't have anything, not even the flights. But at this stage as well. And actually, before the first date, um, there were the Colombo bombings, oh, wow. and the whole country was in curfew, in lockdown, mm. uh, and that made me think, okay, this place is quite dangerous, and it's probably not going to happen now. And I didn't hear from the coach for a while, so I was like, fine, fine. About a month or so after the bombings, he got in contact to say, sorry, Seth, I've been quiet. Obviously, the country's been in lockdown, uh, not going to do anything, but the tournament's still happening, and you're still going to come over. Okay, right. The, the fourth time that the kind of date to fly came when I was like, this isn't going to happen. And then eventually he sent a contract through. He's like, right, you fly, you fly in three days' time. And I said, I can't, like, I need to get my jabs. I'm not, I'm not going yeah, about yeah. my jabs. Um, like, it wasn't, it also wasn't actually the finalised contract. It was just like, this is probably what you're going to sign. Okay. Uh, so when I got my jabs, I bought myself a week. Um, said to everyone, I might see you in a couple of weeks. I don't know what's going to happen here. Um, I don't have a clue what football shrank is like. Um, and flew out with a guy called Dean, who was from Northern Ireland, and who mm-hmm. was simply just absolutely baffled and didn't really think it was going to happen. Um, but we, we got to Sri Lanka. We, we kind of got to the airport in Heathrow, and we thought, we don't even know if these flights are going to be legit, if we're going to be allowed on. Um, right. We were, and we ended up in Sri Lanka. And it was just an absolutely incredible experience. Um, I, I truly love playing football in Sri Lanka. Um, 
Was there like a big? Was there a big? Fo- was there a bigger following there than you expected? Or? Yeah, there was. There, there really was. I was in the northeast, which is actually the right in the epicenter of the war. Um, oh wow! Right. Okay. <laughs> the war that finished, I think, in two thousand and nine. So I was out there in two thousand and nineteen. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was football, football shirts everywhere. Um, oh. There are lots of games. Probably more games of football going on than, than games of cricket, which really surprised me. Okay. Um, yeah. There was a lot of passion for football. Um, Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of ability for football. Well, that, that's unfair. There's a lot of potential for football. Um, but the problem was there's no coaching infrastructure there. Um, mm-hmm. There's only really coaches in Colombo, which is where our coach was from. Um, but out in the northeast, there's no real coaches. So it's okay. a very kind of early game of football. It's, you know, players not understanding tactics, understanding positioning. Right. Uh, it's all very kick and rush. Um, okay. Players not very comfortable in possession of the ball. Uh, they, they don't even know things as basic as keepy-uppies. Um, right. However, if they were coached, they could become quite good. Mm. Um, so that was a learning curve because in Brazil, I was one of the worst players, whereas in Sri Lanka, me and Dean were the best two players by by some way. Um, right. How this league worked was that, so it was the Northeast Premier League, it was called, and mm-hmm. it was set up to kind of unify the area that was uh, um, that been at war almost with the rest of Sri Lanka. So the area that the Tamil Tigers operated in, um, each one of these teams has allowed four foreign professionals um, to play in the league. Only two of the foreign professionals could play at once, though, so that's why Trinco Titans, my team, only had two of us. Okay. And it was yeah, it was a whole new experience to kind of be the leader. Um, I mean, there are massive posters of me and Dean um, unfurled in the stadium. Um, I really hope you asked for it. I really hope you still got that somewhere in the house. Yeah. <laughs> So that's the thing. I, I say to them, look, I need to give this to my mum for Christmas. Um, yeah. Or I need to just take it home and just put it on the front of my house. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That'd be um, my garden forever. Yeah. Unfortunately, fast forwarding quite a bit, uh, the tournament didn't quite, or the league didn't quite turn out how we expected. Uh, we right. did very poorly. And I did hear that my poster was burned by the fans in Hunger. So. Wow, right, okay. <laughs> Leaving a legacy out there, though, I like it. <laughs> so, yeah, since, since I played professional over there, I don't think any other European person's played professional over there. <laughs> I, think, I think me and Dean might have ruined it for everyone else, actually. <laughs> so how? what was the tournament like? Was it like it was a nationwide tournament? It was, like, uh, what, what was the standard like? Just in the northeast. Um, oh, right, okay. It was, the pitches were terrible. Uh, so right. our pitch, it had a cricket a cricket mat nailed into it. There were bricks in it. There were. It was dangerous. It was literally dangerous. Um, before the games, the pitch was watered. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't watered so that the ball would fly across it nicely. It was watered so that the dust wouldn't fly up into the players' faces. Jesus. So when the when the pitch wasn't watered, it was horrible. I mean, also you had yeah. cows on the pitch. So before the game, cows were literally on the pitch, and the pre-match warm involved um, finding the biggest stones and throwing them off the pitch, and also shoveling the cow poo off the pitch. Jesus. So totally alien. Um, like in training sessions, cows would be in the eighteen-yard box. You had to like kind of play around them. Um, There's those improvisation skills again. That's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's very much a case of having to lead my teammates. So I played centre back. Mm. I said that I hated heading the ball and I wasn't right. very good at it. But in Sri Lanka, everyone was very small. Um, our striker had size five feet and was forty-five kilograms. Um, my days. So I didn't. I didn't even need to jump to win a header, which was great for me. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think Dean, the guy from Northern Ireland, described it very well. As he used to come off, off after game and say, "Seth, my head is fried," and that was very much the case. Like my my right back would go and stand next to their winger, and so what oppositions would just do, and what we also did because the uh, opponents yeah. did this as well, is we just played diagonals between the centre back and the right back because that's where okay. the space was. 
And I used to scream saying, no, stand halfway between me and you know the winger. Yeah, just yeah. You, you can get across there. And they just like say, yes, yes, yes. And then go and... So very, very basic tactic, tactical limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, our, though we were owned by Mahela and Kumar, they were doing it as a social um, like initiative thing, really. Okay. So actually, we're all being paid the same amount. We were being paid quite a modest sum. Mm-hmm. And most of the other teams were being paid far, far more than us. So when the tournament okay. did start... Uh, and because it was social initi- initiative, uh, we had t- players just from Trinco Malin, really, where we were based. Whereas the other teams had players from all over and okay, recruiting right. and playing them well. So when this one started, actually, we we were quite inferior to a lot of the teams. Mm. Um, and it was it was hard. We lost quite a few games. We won our first game and the fans were great. They were all, like, dancing. And everywhere I went after that first game, they were saying, Seth, Seth, well done. Like, it was, it was crazy. Like, I had about... 2,000 people added me on Facebook. Um, everywhere I went, wow. like, they're saying, Seth, Seth, like, they were, you know, like, me and Dean were looking at each other, like, we're rock stars out here. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. It's like Maradona like, in Napoli. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we started losing. And by the end, uh, I had people saying that I was uh, a little girl, was what I was called at one point. Okay, nice. nice. In the city. Uh, and then towards the end, actually, our team got attacked by the fans. Uh, oh, so one of my last, the last home game I played in, uh, we were barricaded in changing rooms, like with the, the owner just like holding the door like that. And just the fans, they were throwing stuff at the change room window, saying, come out, come out, you've got Shona City, let us deal with you. The one thing for me, though, um, and it's quite strange out there because there's a massive white privilege. And so... Mm. Though a few people said, you know, you've brought Shannon City to me, by and large, the fans loved me and Dean. Okay. And after that, we lost 5-0 in that game, which is why mm-hmm. the fans reacted so badly. They wanted to hurt my teammates, and yet right. they applauded off the pitch and said, Seth, Seth, the best defender ever. Oh, it, was, it was quite a strange experience. Um, but I, I do find the Schlanker experience was so, so rewarding mm-hmm. because kind of seeing my teammates, like how they come from nothing... Almost like they, you know, a lot of them had been involved in the war. They'd lost friends in the war. Yeah. Some even fought in the war. You know, we were playing against like one of the guys I played against was the football captain of the Tamil Tigers football team. Jesus. He, he was like the head of sport, and so I like when they had a head of sport. Yeah, I mean, like who who's ever going to go and beat the Tamil Tigers football team? Sure, they won every game they played. <laughs> well, you think so? Team. Yeah, 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 you would think so. Yeah. Uh, so, but then, like, but also seeing how they improved, like they, cause they improved so so much over the course, like. Not just from me and Dean, but also because the coaching staff were very good. You know, they came from Colombo, they knew what they were on about, and it was great to see the players improve. And they're all so humble and you know, so so grateful to us. And um, you know, they had you know usually so for these three months, three four months of the season, they're professionals. But the rest of the time, they were fishermen, they were painters, they were surviving on less than five pounds a day. And kind of despite this almost poverty, really. They'd invite me and Dean to their houses. They'd, they'd buy us food. They'd mm. always cook for us. They couldn't do enough for us. And it was just That's amazing incredible. to see. And it, it, mm. it, again, it taught you so much about the world and about like what's important in life, really. That's incredible. That's incredible. I'm very, I'm very, very jealous. I love this. Like, I think I've bored my girlfriend to death with the idea of like my dream. Uh, if I had ever been a footballer, would be kind of not top division, but those middling divisions and just moving around the world and just traveling. I think it is. Incredible, it's incredible, but Seth, unfortunately, we have run out of time. We're gonna to have to get you on again because I feel like there's a lot more stories, there's many more stories to come from you. Um, so for our listeners, you can promote your book. So for your time in Brazil, the book is called The Boy in Brazil, and for your time in Sri Lanka, Titans of the Teardrop Isle. Beautiful, and 
Is there any other work you want to plug? Where can we follow you on social media? Any work coming up? Yeah, just at Seth Burkett. Um, work coming up uh, is all fiction books um, in kind of inspired by my time in Brazil and Sri Lanka, um, which have been getting rejected actually quite a lot recently. But I, I do think, you know, will eventually become books. So they'll rise and, and hopefully um, extending the series of techers and play football heroes. So lots of potentials, but we'll see what actually happens. Perfect. And we're just going to finish with some questions that we ask everybody we've interviewed who, who has played professionally. Um, who was the best player you've played with? Uh, best player I've played with? God, that's a tough one. Um, probably the player that's done the most would be Sam Clucas, who I played with at Lincolnshire. Okay. Um, nice. But he was actually playing the bench at Lincolnshire. He wasn't amazing. Mm. However, what he's gone on to do, and he is now an incredible player, and it yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot about development. Um, I'd say over in Brazil, it would, it would have to be Capone. Um, okay. By, nice. by the time I played with him, he was 38. Um, mm-hmm. He had a terrible diet. He smoked 40 a day, and yet he was still absolutely class. Like, you know, <laughs> okay, I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. Um, the best player you played against? Best player I played against? Uh, this would be going back to Academy days. Um, okay. I think it's quite a lot of people who, like, I remember I played against Jamie Vardy, for example, when I played for Stanford. Oh, nice. um, but the best player I played against would have been Theo Walcott's cousin. I remember playing against him, a guy called Jacob Walcott. And okay. he absolutely ran me ragged. Um, <laughs> and I remember just the ball was going off. And I just boosted it as far as I could away. And he's like, what are you doing? You, you know, call me this and that. I was like, look, mate, just give me give me a few seconds. You're absolutely knackering me. So this, this, again, there's, there's quite a few guys I play against who have gone on to do you know, very, very good things in the game. But that, Jacob Walcott really sticks out to me. It's just the player who tore me to shreds. Very nice. And finally, the best atmosphere you played in? Um, has to be Brazil. Uh, yeah. I, that's that's Brazil. So when we played Palmeiras, again, I didn't actually play now. I was, I was an unused sub. Um, okay. The Sun did actually report and said that I was the man of the match against Palmeiras first team, which I didn't mind. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. People watching, and they were were like, people had England shirts for me, and just like the raw for goals are just incredible. Um, That said, the atmosphere in Sri Lanka was also amazing uh, for a totally different reason. Is that you only probably had seven, eight hundred people at the games, but rather than going in the sand, they all stood right around, um, right right around the pitch around the So really, like literally a meter away from the game. Mm And because of that, it had an amazing atmosphere, and they'd all like come with their mopeds and honk their horns. Um, nice. Sometimes got a bit aggressive towards the referee, and so you wanted them like in when you were a home team. But I think the very first game I played in Sri Lanka, where we won, and we won with a late goal to make it three-two, and the crowd just stormed the pitch. I've I've never known a buzz like it. Um, so I'd, I'd probably have to say actually that that is the best atmosphere, just because. Yeah, the fear that that's probably the best thing I've ever had in life. It was indescribable. That's incredible. Beautiful. Seth, thank you for coming on. We've absolutely loved it. We'll be in touch for another interview at some point, I'm sure, (laughs) because I do feel like there's more stories. Thank you. Thank you very much. And there we go. That was the interview. My first one solo, Tommy. That was my first flying solo interview. I really, really enjoyed it. Mm, I think you were alone with Emmanuel oh, Rojo last you've season. You've got a better manager than you've got a better manager. <laughs> better memory. A better memory. No, and grasp of the English language, apparently. 
Look, guys, uh, it's always, I don't know, we, we do this podcast together, and of course, I would have loved to be there, but yesterday, uh, commitments got in the way, and I couldn't, but great interview, very well done, Rory. I'm, uh, I'm incredible stories, incredible, mm-hmm. incredible stories. Remember, you can also find, if you wanted the video of the interview, you can find if it you on YouTube. If you want to see my beautiful face to go alongside it. Exactly, and when they find it on YouTube, Rory, what should they do with our channel? Hit like and subscribe. Smash that button. There you go and tell a friend. But it's now time to preview Premier League very quickly and the Serie A action for the weekend. Let's start in England. There is the clash of the titans this very weekend. It's finally here. But first, we have Friday night. We have Newcastle taking on Wolves at 9 o'clock Central European time. We're in Europe. Deal with it. On Saturday, the early kickoff is... Oh, the early kickoff. I'm sorry. At least Everton fans, think of it this way. You'll be able to get it out of the way and get on with the rest of your weekend as Everton hosts Manchester United at half past one. The three o'clock kickoffs or four o'clock kickoffs. God damn it, I always do it. On Saturday, we have a relegation six, nine pointer as Watford host Leeds. Um, Watford currently in 19th position on 22 points. Leeds all the way up in 16th on 30. But if Watford win this, Leeds could see themselves slightly dragged back into this challenge. Then we also have Southampton hosting Chelsea. Chelsea will really be looking to turn around this slight blip of form they're having at the moment. Obviously, we said conceded seven in the last two. Southampton, so unpredictable. You never know what's going to happen there. We have Arsenal hosting Brighton. Brighton have not scored in 10 years. Of course, they're going to score this weekend. <laughs> but hopefully, Arsenal can score more. Um, Are then you going the to late be by the goal? Yeah, honestly, I am. We lost at home to them last season, I'm pretty sure. So, definitely not a banker. Especially after the shit show that we had against Palace. Um then right, we had the... right. We haven't had the possibility to discuss that, Rory. Moving on, the late kickoff <laughs> on Saturday, we have Aston Villa hosting Tottenham. Tottenham are going to win. Let's just get on with it. And then on Sunday, we have Leicester City taking on Palace. I think this could be a really, really good game. Palace, obviously, proving a thorn in the side for many a very good team this year, Manchester City and Arsenal included. Um At the same time, we have Norwich taking on Burnley. Burnley, if they get three points, will do absolutely no harm in their survival chances. Norwich, already relegated, not won in God knows how long. I can't be bothered looking through that far in the fixtures. And at the same time, we have Brentford taking on West Ham. A cheeky little London derby there. Um, Two sides playing decent football. I think that could be one to keep an eye on. And then we have the main event. They're saving it till last. Half past five Central European time. Manchester City host Liverpool. All the talking stops, as they will inevitably say on Sky Sports. Um, How are you feeling about this game? I'm pretty excited about it. I still don't know who could win. Anything could happen. It's it's one of those things that it's just going to be beautiful because it's unpredictable. And after it happens, you're going to be like, whoa, I didn't expect that. Or maybe, (laughs) well, that's the only way this game could have gone. Shall we go to Serie A? Let's do it. In Serie A, it all kicks off on Saturday, April the 9th at 3pm with Empoli, who haven't won in 15 games across all competitions. Jesus. Since December 15th. Are they the Brighton Brighton of Italy? Really good start. And then 
got the job done mid-season yes. in December. They were already on the beach, and then he's just like, all right, now let's fuck it up. They're going to take on Spezia. Spezia, honestly, they are inches away from being okay, from Come being on, all right. Do We've it. done it. So I think this game could be interesting. Inter take on Elas Verona at the 6 p.m. at Mil- in Milan. Um, I said that when we added that nonsensical episode with our predictions, day, match day by match day until the end of the season, I said that Inter Milan would draw this game. Now, um, if we go into this game playing like we played away at Juve, we are never going to win it. So, guys, wake the fuck up. There are mm-hmm. seven games left. We gotta, we gotta step it up. All right, step it up and let's start in front of your home crowd at the San Siro against a good side like Verona. And then at 8.45, Cagliari take on Juventus. Cagliari still flirting with relegation. Could this be the game to try and get some points? I do not think so. On Sunday, 12.30 p.m., Genoa host Lazio. Then at 3 p.m., we've got uh, three games. Napoli-Fiorentina. Ozyman is expected to be back for this game. Woo. Fiorentina chasing European football spots. So this could be an interesting one, but I see Napoli winning it. Sassuolo-Atalanta is at 3 p.m. Could we call it the Boga Derby? Since Ooh, Boga moved from Sassuolo to Atalanta. Uh, Atalanta probably are going to be a bit tired after this away game on Thursday at Leipzig. Sassuolo, are they in good form? Eh, Kind of up and down. Three wins, a draw, and one loss to Lazio across their last five games. And then the last 3 p.m. game is Venezia against Udinese. 6 p.m., Roma take on whipping Serie A boys Salernitana. And at 8.45, Turin host the Rossoneri. I did say in my opinion, this is going to be a draw between Torino and AC Milan. It all wraps up with Monday Night Football, 8.45pm. We've got Bologna after their nil-nil draw against AC Milan hosting Sampdoria. And that's it for the Serie A weekend. Forza Inter, of course. I will leave it to Rory to send you off with our customary end-of-the-episode quote, but first, remember to follow us on Instagram at AngloItalianPod, on Twitter at ItalianAngloPod, and to give a cheeky little follow to our sponsor at the Sports Club Maps. Also, we are on YouTube, we are on Twitch, we're bloody everywhere, guys. So follow us, and I think that I have bought Rory enough time to retrieve the quote from his phone so I can breathe and say goodbye, guys, and Forza Inter. You saw the panic on my face. You know me so well, Tommy. We are going to leave with a quote from, of course, we're going to close how we opened with Kareem the Dream Benzema and a, a motivational quote, I think. Why worry about your image when you are who you are? You have to like yourself. If you wait for others to tell you that they like you, then you don't understand anything. Have a good weekend, listeners. We will see you on Monday.